Great, great to be with you. What a wonderful um, time we've had together in, in worship. And even as we've gathered around these, these themes of God's mission and, and being a generous people, um, really tease us up well for our story from the book of Acts this morning. As Amunisi said, we heard last week uh, from Calvin brilliantly about how this, this newly formed community of faith was an incredibly generous people. They were filled with the Spirit, and that, that made them bold to witness, even when they were arrested and, and thrown into prison. But it also gave them the freedom to not hold tightly to their, their things, to their possessions, like they were their own. But it, it gave them the freedom to, to hold loosely to them, to release them as they were needed and as they felt compelled to. And I, I, I want to emphasize that this was something that they did with great freedom and with great joy. It wasn't that everyone had to get rid of all of their things, but it says that much grace was upon them. And that from time to time, people who had land or houses sold them and brought them to the apostles' feet. And today we're going to see something quite different from all of that. And just to warn you, this is one of those passages that you come across in the Bible uh, in Acts 5 where you think, oh, I kind of wish this wasn't in there. You know, I kind of wish we could just skip over this part. And so I, I want to warn you that if you're here for the first time with us today, or even worse, if you've been inviting someone to come to church, like week after week after week, and today is the day they finally came to church, I just want to warn you that today we're speaking about a couple who get struck down dead seemingly because they didn't give enough money to the church. Aren't, aren't you glad you came, guys? Welcome again to One Tribe this morning. Now, I know in many places, uh, money and the church have a really troubled relationship. And Bonisi has already spoken into this brilliantly. It's a really important topic for us to grapple with. But I want you to know, as difficult as this passage is, it's got so much more than just that to teach us. And I want to encourage you that we believe here at One Tribe that all of God's story, all of the Bible, is useful. All of it is helpful in shaping us and molding us to be the type of people that he wants us to be. So I want you to know that I'm really excited uh, about what we are going to learn today. But I'm glad that we've prayed as well before we get into it. You can follow in your Bibles as we get into the story. I'm going from the last verse of Acts chapter 4 up to the 11th verse of Acts chapter 5. You can also see it on the screen. But I'm going to actually tell it to you as a story because we believe that stories are powerful. So you can also just listen to me uh, if you'd like to. One man from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field and he brought all of the money from the sale and he gave it to the apostles to be distributed amongst the church community as needed. A man called Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira uh, also sold his property. However, together with his wife, Sapphira, they decided to keep some of the money back for themselves. And they brought the rest of the money to the apostles and gave it to them as if they were bringing the full proceeds of the sale. But Peter confronted Ananias and he said, Ananias! How has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back some of the money for yourself? Wasn't the land yours 
before you sold it and after you sold it. Wasn't the money yours to do with it, whatever you wished. How did you think of doing such a thing? You haven't just lied to people. You've lied to the Lord God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down at Peter's feet and died. And everyone who heard about these things were filled with great fear. And some young men came forward and they, they took the body and they wrapped it up and they carried Ananias out and they buried him. About three hours later, Sapphira, Ananias' wife, she came in. She didn't know what had happened. And Peter, giving her a chance to tell the truth, asked her, is this the full amount of money that you and Ananias received for this land? Yes, it is, she answered. Peter confronted her also. How is it that you have agreed to test the Holy Spirit. Look, the feet of the men who just carried your husband's body out of here are at the door. And they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down and died. So the men came in, the young men, and finding her dead, they picked her up and they carried her out. And they buried her beside her husband. And again, a great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these things. What a disturbing and tragic story. The early believers who had been opposed by outsiders were now having trouble with insiders. And, And Peter seems to suggest that behind this, it was the devil, it was the enemy who was at work. When Peter says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? And so Ananias and Sapphira, they get sucked into the sin of hypocrisy and these disastrous consequences. And today we're going to unpack the story by looking at two things, the ugliness of hypocrisy and the beauty of authenticity. But before we go there, I just want to address the elephant in the room. Okay, what are we to make of two people falling over dead in church when they're confronted with their sin? You know, Peter sees Ananias coming with this this gift, and it's all looking good on the outside. But the Holy Spirit gives Peter this knowledge that this isn't real. This is phony. And he confronts Ananias of a sin. And and when that happens, he dies. Now, it's not like Peter shoots him, okay? Peter doesn't strike him down. He just exposes his sin, and he dies. And then even more disturbing, a couple of hours later, Ananias' wife rocks up. She comes in, Peter gives her a chance to confess, she doesn't, she dies. This is not a case of two random heart attacks in quick succession. It's also not a case of some spiritual leader using his power to kind of zap his followers when they stand out of line. No, undoubtedly, what we see here is the judgment of God breaking out instantly on Ananias and Sapphira. We've seen a lot of miracles and wonders so far in the book of Acts. Matthew Henry calls this a miracle of judgment. But hang on. Isn't this type of thing only supposed to happen in the Old Testament? 
No, it's not uncommon for us to think about the God of the Old Testament being a God of wrath and anger. But the God of the New Testament is a much more lenient and, and kind of tolerant God. It seems backwards to us and disturbing, shocking. So how do we reconcile this idea of the God of wrath and the God of love that we've been singing about today that we've seen so far in the book of Acts? Well, that's a good question. It's a tough one. And uh, we can't answer all the questions today. But one thing that's been really helpful to me recently is this idea that God being a God of judgment and God being a God of love are not opposed to each other. And actually, it's because God is a God of love that he's a God of judgment also. Think about it. If you are a father or a mother and you've got a child and somebody else is trying to deceive or to harm or even destroy your child, I would expect you to get angry. I would expect you to defend your child. You would never say, no, 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 because I'm loving, I'm not going to get angry. You would never even say, because I'm loving, I'm not going to defend my child. I'm not going to desire justice so that that person can't harm somebody else again. No, it's because you love that you get angry. Becky Pippitz, a Christian author, and this is what she says. She says, think how we feel when someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's a settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. So our, our modern minds are troubled by this death of Ananias and Sapphira as God chooses to judge their sin instantly, dramatically. Maybe, maybe it's because of the danger their hypocrisy posed to this newly formed community that was enjoying this freedom and joy and grace that we've been learning about. And so God acts decisively. He's like a surgeon. He's cutting through flesh to take out a malignant tumor that threatens the life of the patient. And I don't think that answers all of the questions about why this happened to Ananias and Sapphira, but I hope it's a helpful start. But now I want us to take a closer look at the cancer itself. I want us to look at the ugliness of hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Well, it comes from the Greek word hypocrisis, which means play acting. So imagine I came to church with a football and a Tottenham Hotspur uh, jersey on, and I started to kick it around. Now, and I said to you, hey, I'm Harry Kane. <laughs> now, I may look like Harry Kane, and I've been told I play pretty much as good as Harry Kane, <laughs> but that doesn't make me Harry Kane. And so you can think of what Ananias and Sapphira were doing here as it's kind of a religious play acting putting on a show of holiness and piety that didn't actually match the truth of what was going on behind closed doors, what was going on in their hearts. And that, in that sense, hypocrisy is actually the opposite of authenticity and integrity, where what you see is what you get. 
Jesus was passionately opposed to hypocrisy during his time on earth. He kept on warning his disciples to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is what he called hypocrisy. Now, I've learned a little bit about yeast because unexpectedly, during COVID, I have become a sourdough bread baker. I like to think that it's really impressed my wife, um, but I, I often leave behind this huge trail of like mess. So sometimes I feel like it's backfired. But those of you who, who know about sourdough bread will know that you don't use this dry yeast to make the bread. You use this like goo. It's like flour and water and it's collected natural yeast from the air. You take some of that goo and you mix it into your, your, your bread recipe. And at first, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. You would even, never even know the yeast is in there. It's like just this dead bulge of stuff. And then you leave it overnight in the kitchen. And, and when you come in in the morning, it's amazing because this yeast has worked its way through the loaf. It's risen. It's ready to bake and win Tesney's heart. And um, hypocrisy is like that. It's a sin that works in the dark. It's unseen, undetected. It can poison a heart. And eventually, it can poison a whole community. But what's underneath this sin of hypocrisy? You know, I, I think there's actually some other sins swimming around under the sin of hypocrisy. And I think if we look at those in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we can learn some lessons about how we can guard our own hearts and our own community from this. So let's look at the first one. First way to avoid hypocrisy that we learn from Ananias and Sapphira is that, guys, we need to fear God. Ananias and Sapphira's actions demonstrated that they did not. Peter told them plainly, hey, you've lied, not just to men, but to God, to the Holy Spirit. You've tested him. Michael Eaton, who uh, is a great theologian who passed away recently, lived and, and ministered here in Kenya, he describes this testing as continuing to sin in the hope that God will do nothing about it. See, it seems what they really feared was not having enough money in their pockets. Not God. It seems what they really feared was what others would think of them if they didn't give all the money. Not God. Michael Reeves is really helpful on the subject of the fear of God. And he says this. He says, our fears are highly revealing. What you fear shows what you love. We fear our children getting hurt because we love them. We fear losing our jobs because we love the security, the identity that they give us. We fear rejection and criticism because we love approval. Which do you fear more? Being sinful or being uncomfortable? God or man? Being a sinner or just being exposed as a sinner? Our fears are like ECG readings, constantly telling us about the state of our hearts. In contrast to Ananias and Sapphira's lack of the fear of God, we read twice in this passage that a great fear seized that early church. In one tribe, let us always remember that sin is serious, that God is holy and powerful. And even as we enjoy God's love and grace, let us revere him as holy and powerful. I was reading Psalm 111 just yesterday. It came up as my devotion, and it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Paul writes to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Tesney's been tracking along with the advanced theology course. And um, I managed to catch a little bit of it the other day that was really helpful on this topic. Andrew Wilson speaking about the story where the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and a huge storm comes out of nowhere and hits them. And they're terrified for their lives. They're panicking. The boat's going to break apart. And Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. So they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Jesus gets up, tells the waves, be quiet. He tells the wind to be still. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? What's interesting is that the story ends with saying that the disciples were filled with great fear. Not of the waves or the wind anymore, but of Jesus in awe of him. And they ask each other, who is this? But the winds and the waves obey him. See, the disciples' fear of the raging storm was replaced by the fear of the one that the winds and the waves obeyed. And can you see how that's a different type of fear? The fear of the thing that was for against them was replaced by the fear of someone who was completely for them. See, as Christians, the fear of God reminds us that God is holy, that sin is serious. It helps us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. But it's very different to being afraid of God in the same way that we are afraid of the storm. The same way we are afraid uh, of, of the thief. The same way we are afraid of COVID. See, now this is a type of fear that we can actually rejoice in. <laughs> It's a type of fear that says, man, there's a lot of things out there that I could be scared of, and they are scary, but wow, look at the one who loves me and is for me and is always good. I fear him more than those things. So we can agree with the psalmist in Psalm 2 who says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So we tremble. And we rejoice and we run to take refuge in him. Secondly, if we want to avoid hypocrisy, we've got to learn from Ananias and Sapphira that our hearts need to beat for the glory of God, not for our own. You see, um, under their sin of, 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 of deceit, um, it, the issue was not that they were being stingy. It, it, it wasn't that they were not being generous enough. In fact, Peter makes it clear. He says to them, hey, the land was yours. You could have kept it. The money was yours. You could have kept it. And I imagine you could have given some of it and kept some of it. The issue was that they lied. And they acted like they were giving all of the money when they weren't. And it was like they looked at the example of Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. And they wanted to be respected and admired and celebrated as a pillar of the community, as generous, as selfless, as spiritual. So they put on a show. Not to please God, not to help the poor, but to buy a reputation, to fatten their own egos. Michael Eaton, again, is helpful here. He says, back behind hypocrisy is a great love of ourselves. A love of being admired, a love of being flattered. Friends, we have to be so careful of this in church life. I have to be so careful of this. 
And it's a type of spiritual ambition that I think is really healthy and pleases God. A type of spiritual ambition that, that says with Paul, hey, I'm pushing on towards the goal for which Christ has caused me, called me heavenwards. I'm going to take hold of that prize. Like Jesus said, seek the kingdom first. But there's also a type of spiritual ambition that is not spiritual at all. <laughs> it's not about God. It's not about eternity. It's using religion and spirituality as a kind of like a currency, as a way to look good and get drunk on the praise and the respect of others. And Jesus attacked this root of hypocrisy. In fact, there's a whole chapter in Matthew where he attacks us. Matthew 23, he says things like, everything that they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the feasts. They love to be greeted with respect, called teacher. They clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside it's full of greed and self-indulgence. They're like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones. And instead, when Jesus is instructing his disciples in Matthew 6, he knows the tendency of their hearts to drift towards this pursuit of their own glory and praise. And so he tells them, hey, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. When you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners so that they can be seen by men. Go into your room in secret. Your father will see what you're doing. When you fast, don't look somber, disfigured faces like the hypocrites. Oh, Instead, gel your hair, wash your face. People won't even know you're fasting except for your father in heaven. In short, live to please your father, to get his well done, eternal well done, <laughs> instead of the praise of people around you, which is, by the way, it's here today and it's, it's gone tomorrow. Lastly, if we want to avoid hypocrisy, we've got to look at the example of Ananias and Sapphira, and we've got to be determined to trust God completely. You see, underneath Ananias and Sapphira's greed, under their pursuit of men's praise, was ultimately a lack of trust in God. They didn't trust God enough to provide for him, so they felt like, we better keep some of this money in our back pockets just in case. They didn't trust God. They weren't convinced enough that God was enough to satisfy them, to keep them safe, ultimately to save them. So they looked to things like their reputation and money instead. See, the gospel of grace that the early church had embraced up until this point was that Jesus plus nothing saves you. Not faith in Jesus plus money. Not faith in Jesus plus some spirituality and religion. Not faith in Jesus plus a good reputation. Faith in Jesus plus nothing. A free gift of God. Received in faith and paid for by the cross. But Ananias and Sapphira put their faith in other things. And when we do that, when we trust other things ahead of God, even if they're good things, we get into trouble. One tribe, what are we putting our trust in? If it's anything other than Christ, we're on shaky ground. We're in danger of slipping into hypocrisy. But when we trust Him completely, we are free. We're free to be real. Not put on a show. 
We're free because our future, our security, our safety, and ultimately our salvation are in good hands with the God that we've trusted. So we've unpacked the ugliness of hypocrisy. We've looked at three ways that we can avoid it. We can fear God. We can live to glorify God. We can trust God wholeheartedly. And Anais and Sapphira didn't do that. And hypocrisy ruined their lives. You know, as, as disturbing it is to see their bodies physically disintegrate outwardly in this passage, what maybe is even more disturbing is the way in which their hearts had already disintegrated inwardly. See, and, and that's the way sin always works. Outwardly, it may not lead to death instantly, but inwardly, death is growing slowly. It's like James, the apostle, he writes in his letter and says that when we give in to temptation, when we give in to our desire to sin, it gives birth to sin. And if sin is not nipped in the bud, if it's not dealt with, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. So let's be sober. <laughs> let's consider the example we have in Scripture of this couple and their fate. And let's fight hypocrisy with all that we have. But now on to happier things. I want to talk about the beauty of authenticity. And actually, this is one of our values here at One Tribe. And this is how we describe it. Around here, what you see is what you get. What's on the box is what's inside the box. We allow one another to see the worst of us, and we allow one another to see the best of us. In this family, we are free to be who God made you to be. This is not a church where you are loved and not known, or worse, known and not loved, but a church where you can be fully known and fully loved. I like it. Authenticity is the opposite of hypocrisy. It's taking off our masks. It's stopping the play acting. It's being real, even when real is not perfect. Jesus had harsh words for hypocrites, but he had open arms for broken, imperfect people like you and me. So we say in this church, come as you are. No need to put on a show. You can be fully known. You're good, you're bad, and be fully loved in this family. The one thing I love about the Bible is that it is incredibly authentic. It shows the heroes of the faith as people who struggle with sin, who mess up, who make mistakes. And you know, it would have been easy for Luke just to skip over the story, I think. I mean, up until now, the early church was looking pretty good, incredibly brave and generous. But here we see that they weren't a band of angels, but a group of fallen people. And that makes it so much easier for us to relate to. And it's interesting that in this passage, it's the first time that Luke uses the word ecclesia in the original language to describe the church. It's translated as the church. And this is the same word that Jesus used when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the book of Acts is the start of that happening. We see the church attacked from the outside, but it stands firm. It endures. We, now we see the church attacked from the inside, and it keeps going. I think it's significant that he uses this word, Ecclesia, for the first time in the middle of the story to describe a body of believers who belong to and who are accountable to one another. 
And for me, that's a great reminder of one of the big application points I want to submit to you today out of this message. And that is that we need to make ourselves accountable to one another. You see, when we, when we slip into the world's mindset of saying, I can be independent. My life is my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. And I don't have to tell anyone what I'm doing. And, and you know what? I don't have to make myself vulnerable to let people know what I'm struggling with. I don't have to make myself vulnerable and let them know both my victories and my defeats, my, my good works and my sin. And when you do that, I think you can easily slip towards hypocrisy. Because you can put on a, a mask on a Sunday that looks pretty good. It's like, I've got it all together in this Christian walk. But when you're on your own in secret, nobody can see what you're doing. And it means that you're isolated. It means that you're open to attack. But when we open up our lives to one another, then I believe that we can put into practice all the one another commands that the Bible talks about. We can encourage one another in the faith. We can carry burdens for one another. We can confess our sins to one another. And ultimately, we can love one another. I was chatting to a friend recently in this church. He was going through some big work decisions. And part of that story was that one company, a new company, had asked him to do some consultancy for them while he was still working for the other company. We were talking about, hey, that might be tricky. Like, how do you be honest with your current employers about what you're doing with this new potential employer? In the middle of the conversation, he turned to me and he said something like, hey, Sean, please hold me accountable to handling this with integrity. Brilliant. Just in that moment, that, that whole danger of slipping into dishonesty or compromise, it's, it's brought out into the light where you can see it and where you can avoid it. And I want to encourage you. Whatever you are struggling with, if you're battling with pornography or lust, if you're battling with cheating on your taxes, if you're battling with drinking a bit too much, if you're battling with gossip, guys, let's pull these things out into the light. Share it with someone that you trust in this family. You know, sin loses its power over us and we can stare it down together. And when you're in those moments of temptation, it's really helpful to know somebody's going to ask me about this in a couple of days' time. And when you, you also know that if I mess up, somebody's going to be there to stand with me, to fight with me, to pray with me. And that's hugely encouraging. So let's be accountable to each other. But I want to close by, by just pointing us to the only one who is truly authentic. The, one, the only one who always truly has integrity who always is who he says he is. He always does what he says he will do. And that's Jesus. John Piper writes a poem about this passage and he imagines Peter sitting by the graves of Ananias and Sapphira, weeping, replaying the scenes to himself. And he imagines that as dawn breaks, Peter hears the cockerel crow. He imagines that catches Peter's breath because Peter remembers his own sin his own deceit. Just a couple of weeks earlier, on the night Jesus was betrayed, before he was crucified, Peter lied about ever knowing Jesus. And he imagines that Peter asks himself, why them and not me? Guys, I think we can all see some of ourselves in Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe we ask the same question. And that poem ends like this. It says, and sovereign justice would be served if all of us fell dead. 
at Jesus' feet. But if instead we live and stand before his throne, let thanks be given for grace alone. By sovereign grace, we stand before a holy God and live. You see, like Ananias and Sapphira, Jesus was killed. His body was disintegrated on the cross. Not because of his hypocrisy, but in spite of his perfect integrity. Hypocrisy ruined Ananias and Sapphira's life. Eventually, outwardly, and they experienced the wrath of a holy God against them. Jesus' life was utterly ruined on the cross. And he experienced the wrath of a holy God coming against him in full force. But the difference is it wasn't because of his sin. It was because of mine. And it was because of yours. And because of his integrity and because of his sacrifice, all of us who deserve to die can live. If we'll just admit our need for him and put our trust in him and nothing else. So if you haven't ever done that, you can do that today. It's actually really simple. <laughs> it's an authentic cry for help. It's a step of faith in your heart. You can stop banking on your money or your reputation or your good works or whatever else to save you. You can stop play acting like you can make it on your own. And instead, you can just take the free gift of forgiveness and acceptance that Christ offers us. For those of us who've made that decision, we've been adopted by grace into the family of God. Let us delight in the fear of the Lord. Let us fight hypocrisy in our own lives and in this church. And let us rejoice in the grace and the freedom in which we stand. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us, to give us courage, to take our masks off, to be real with one another, to live out an authentic faith together as a family.